Open your Bibles to Isaiah 57, verse 15, if you have them, or I think it's up on the screen. Point of order, Mr. Chairman. Max Carell does believe some things. (laughs) Now that we've got that settled. Read with me the word of the Lord. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of heart in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Recently, in my Bible reading, I came to this, and many of you might have come to it if you're on the same Bible reading program that I am. And as I read it, I thought, well, as often happens when I read the Bible, I think, I never saw that there before. And what an amazing juxtaposition that God puts in his word right there. What an interesting thing. I dwell in eternity, the ESV translation says. I dwell on high, in a high and holy place up here, and oh yes, by the way, I also dwell with the humble and the contrite in heart. I read this and it struck me as a postmodern American, and I went to John Calvin's commentaries and I started looking at how Calvin would see this, and he wasn't a postmodern American. And as I was reading, I, I, I saw that he saw this from two perspectives. One really he really deals with, and then glancingly afterwards he deals with people that he might suppose will come along, and that would be the postmodern Americans. But at first, as he deals with this passage, he says, why does God have to have this juxtaposition? Why did he have to create this and to explain it to us? He says, well, our hearts are often distracted by these thoughts that God is actually in heaven and that there is a great distance between him and us and that he overlooks or despises human affairs and, in a word, that he takes no care at all about us. Now you understand, that's not really how postmoderns think about God, is it? Postmoderns think about God very, very differently than that. So Calvin goes on and he has a second comment about wicked men. I guess he knew postmodernism was coming. So he has a comment about wicked men. And he says, Wicked men are oppressed by various calamities, but do not cease to be fierce and haughty. So they live their lives, like everyone else, with all the difficulty of our lives, and yet they don't stop being fierce and aggressive and haughty, proud. And he says, It will be vain for them to hope that God will draw near to them. It will be vain vain for them to hope that God will draw near to them. Well, in our time, 
our hearts are not distracted by thoughts concerning God's transcendence, how much different than he is from us, how outside of us he is. Our hearts aren't really distracted by that. We have little understanding of his transcendence because everything to us is pretty much eminence, close, connected. God is our buddy. We friended him on Facebook, right? I'm surprised there isn't. There probably is. Don't tell me. Okay? We have an interest in transcendence, but we are arrested in our movement toward, toward God because of our hatred of authority. As we try to approach the one who is high and exalted and who lives forever, our knees start to shake. We realize that something has to go. And like every faithful prophet in Scripture, we start feeling like there's a real problem, like our mouth is, is filthy, like we're going to be undone, like our very molecules are going to disassemble, like we're naked. Would somebody cover me, please? As we approach him, that's how we feel. And so we back away. We don't want to approach a God like that. Wilfred McClay is a historian from Tennessee who occasionally writes in first things. So you may have read something that he writes that he's written, Tim. But he says this. He says, the, the great problem of American life is the riddle of authority, the difficulty of finding a way within a liberal and individualistic social order of living in harmonious and consecrated submission to something larger than oneself. God is larger than oneself. We do want something or someone to worship. We are looking, but we really don't want someone larger than ourselves. Yesterday, Tim called me into his office. We had a young man here uh, who, was, uh, who is a Chinese national. And Tim said, you've got to hear this story. Come in. Well, the man gave his testimony, which was fascinating. Fascinating. And if you're in small groups, in your small groups in the weeks to come, start giving your testimonies. Start telling people about your hope in Christ and how it happened, okay? Just start doing that because it's so encouraging for us to hear what God has done in one another's lives. Well, this man was telling his testimony to us, and then he started relating about a woman that he met in China who had been the product of the Cultural Revolution. And she had grown up. He was trying to introduce her to Jesus Christ and give Christ to her. And she said, well, I don't need it. I've been there and done that. I don't think they have a Chinese translation of that, but we do. Been there, done that, right? And he said, well, how have you been there and done that? She said, well, look, I grew up in the Cultural Revolution. I got up every morning and I said my prayers to Mao and asked him what he wanted me to do that day. And then at the end of the day, I I reported to him what I had done. And I carried my little red book. And I read in the little red book, as they did with everyone in that time, it was forced on them. They could get stopped and beaten if they didn't have their red book with them. And so she says, I've been there and I've done that. And he's thinking, I don't get it. Well, think about it. She'd had religion. 
She had a book. She had a God. She had prayer. And then what happened? Her God died. And then he faced the judgment. But we don't have this God. This isn't the God we approach. We approach the transcendent God who dwells in eternity, who's beyond us, so far beyond us. And we want to worship someone transcendent, but we really don't want to because then we start shaking and quivering. We don't want the attending posture required to worship the transcendent and almighty God. When we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we, th- we begin with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Think about what we're saying at that time. I believe in God. We're theists, right? The Father. We're patriarchal. Almighty. He's omnipotent. Maker of heaven and earth. We reject evolution. We're creationists. Did you think about all the words, all of the realities packed into what we confess in one of the confessions? Just in the first line. But do we really know this God? This transcendent God? Do we understand him? the one who identifies himself as father to his creatures. The lofty God, high and exalted, who lives forever, whose name is holy, who dwells in a high and holy place. Matthew Henry, commenting on this scripture, says that when we consider God, we must consider first that his being and perfections are exalted in infinitely above every creature, not only above what they have themselves, but above what they can can conceive concerning him. We can't even imagine this God. He is so amazing. Secondly, that with him there is neither beginning of days or end of life or change of time. He is both immortal and immutable. He never changes. He only has immortality. He has it of himself and he has it constantly. He inhabits it and cannot be dispossessed of it. We must shortly remove to eternity. That is, we're going there. (laughs) Okay? But God always inhabits it. Third, that there is an infinite rectitude, righteousness, correctness, straightness, holiness in his nature and an exact conformity with himself and a steady design of his own glory in all that he does. Everything we're about, everything is about God's glory. That's how it's all going to end. God's going to get glory. We're going to stand with the creatures around the throne of God saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And never get tired of it. Ever. Because he's that good. Do you understand? He is that good. He is that worthy. Fourthly, that the peculiar residence and manifestation of his glory are in mansions of light and bliss. Isaiah 66 says, 
Verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where a place where I may rest? First Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. He goes on, he says, Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Hebrews talks about Moses and the people of Israel. He says they went to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and they got the law. And while they were at the base of the mountain, there were thunders and lightnings and trembling, and they heard the voice of God, and they said, Don't, please, don't speak to us. Don't let him talk to us. Moses even said, I'm terrified by his voice. And Hebrews says, oh, no, we, we didn't come just to there. That's not where we came as believers now. After Christ has come, after he has inaugurated the kingdom of God, we don't just go to Mount Sinai. We actually go to God's throne through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, we hear him who speaks from heaven. The God who is a consuming fire. But Calvin says, wicked men do not cease to be fierce and haughty, proud. Our scripture says that God dwells in eternity and with the humble. Do you see a connection between submission to God and humility? Some of you might be saying, well, yeah, but they're just the same thing. No, no, they're not the same thing. But they are, they are related, inextricably connected. One makes the other possible. Humility makes submission possible. It makes it possible for us to come to God. And so we're commanded by Peter, you younger men, he says, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now this idea of God being opposed to the proud, the word opposed there, it, it wasn't written by... Uh, uh, who's the, the postmodern guy? <laughs> What's that? Rob Bell. Wasn't written by Rob Bell. Wasn't written by McLaren. It was Brian McLaren, right? This wasn't their idea of opposed. You know, their idea of opposed. No. God is opposed to the proud. I have a, I have a splitting mall at my house. And it's a solid chunk of steel with a handle. And I put a piece of wood on the ground and I raise that thing above my head and as hard as I can, I strike the wood. Understand, that's opposition. I'm opposed to the configuration of that wood. And it will conform to me. Now, if you ask my wife, I'm pretty sore sometimes in the confirmation process, but 
That's not God. You understand? He's opposed to the proud. And when he falls upon them, he will crush them, obliterate them. But we do not humble ourselves before him. Therefore, God does not dwell with us. We don't bow before this God. We don't see his transcendence. We're not humble before him until he does not dwell with us. Not having the proper relationship with him, we cannot attain it with one another either. And so as a church, God has been calling us kindly, mercifully, has been calling us to repent of our sins. He's been calling us to forgiveness. He's been calling us to exercise faith in him. And even in this wonderful time that God has given us, we have, we have had obstacles. We have sins in our hearts and attitudes and postures that have restricted us in our obedience to him. We have tried to say, no, no, you will not conform me to that. I'm going to remain a solid block of wood. You will not conform me. All of these sins are really a manifestation of our pride. One is bitterness. Bitterness. The story of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah doesn't want to go. He runs in the other direction. God makes a great fish to swallow him, spits him out in Nineveh. Jonah goes from that point on the beach to the city and preaches to the Ninevites. Sure enough, God, their hearts change. God changes their hearts. They repent of their sin. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and God does not destroy them. He sends them a warning, they heed his warning, and he does not destroy them. And what happens with Jonah? He was greatly displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Kill me, it's not any good to live anymore. Not if the Ninevites are alive. And God says to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry? Do you think Jonah was sinning? Do you ever think about whether Jonah was sinning there? He was. He was sinning. He had a bitter hatred of the Ninevites. They had done horrible things to his people. God must not have known what they had done. Didn't he know? Well, maybe he knew, but he just, he had this fault and God was faulty because he has this habit of, of being kind to people who do atrocious things and then turn to him in repentance and humble themselves before him. He, he, he gives kindness to them. And Jonah said, that's, that's a problem with God because this is a time when I know better, right? God couldn't be trusted to do the right thing. Jonah was proud, proud, proud. Think about the prodigal son's brother. 
prodigal comes home. The father receives him. The son hears the music and, and sees the dancing as he approaches the house. He asks what's going on. Your brother's come home. Your father's having a party. He became angry, just like Jonah. He said to his father, look, I did all this. I've been like this. I, you never did this. And here he comes home and he squandered everything and da-da-da-da-da. And the father says, wait a minute. Your brother was dead. He's alive. He came and he humbled himself and I received him because I'm loving and kind and forgiving. Shouldn't you be this way? But though the older brother is angry, he knew better than his father. He knew better what should be done. That's why we're bitter toward others. Because they deserve it. Right? Don't they deserve it? Many of us here this morning are bitter. Like Jonah, like the prodigal. We're bitter at our mothers and our fathers, our sisters and our brothers, our husbands and our wives, our sons, our daughters, our bosses, our roommates, our co-workers, our neighbors. And God has been calling us to repentance, forgiveness, and faith. But every time the embittered among us have an opportunity to forgive, they look at the God they were created to bow down before. And rather than humbling themselves and forgiving, they say, I knew it. I knew you would be gracious and compassionate, God. I knew you would be slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. And so we judge God and our pride just pours out. Some of us are in despair. After Judas realized what he had done, he went back to the priest and he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver. And they wouldn't take it. So he threw it into the temple. And then he went, it says, and hanged himself. He went and hanged himself. I want us to lay aside the particulars concerning God's foreknowledge of Judas's perdition. What sin was he committing when he was feeling the remorse that he felt? What happened with Judas is he took the question of Romans 9.19 all the way with him to the hanging tree. What was the question of Romans 9.19? Do you remember? As Paul is instructing the people and he says, Now some of you are saying, well then... What the difference does it make? He made me this way. Can anybody oppose his will? Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And what that does is it throws us into the pool of despair because we, we can't see repentance. We can't see humility. All we can see is our own narcissism and say, well, you know, I'm just this way because that's how God made me. And so we take, take a dip in that pool. It's... It's not a nice, clean, crystal clear pool with, you know, good uh, low algae count. This pool that we take a dip in, it's like those big reservoirs down 37. You know which ones I'm talking about? The ones where they evaporate all the sewage of the city. That's the kind of pool we take a dip in when we despair. And it's just filthy, awful. I can't forgive Because God made me with a broken forgiver. Can't do it. No. You're just full of pride. You won't submit to God. 
Now you have bitterness, you have despair, and now the rest of us are saying, I'm glad I'm not bitter or despairing, right? Well, God has a category just for us, all right? And it's self-righteousness. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. You know this, right? And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, I didn't get a chance because in the first service as I was preaching, I read those words to himself and I thought, I wonder. But it literally says, I just automatically assume it means he was praying quietly to himself. But then that's not what you see in the whole posture of it. He was praying, I wonder, to himself? That's about as far as the prayer got, we know. So he was praying to himself, and he says, I, he says uh, uh, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, pray, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What was the Pharisee's sin? Self-righteousness. Can a man who does not go away from God justified, possibly go to his neighbor and forgive him? Can a man who does not go away from God justified, possibly go to his neighbor, his wife, his daughter, his boss, and forgive him? No. Some of us look around on Sunday mornings while the worship's happening. We look around and we say to God, we pray to ourselves. I thank you, God, that I'm not like Jody Killingsworth. Right? That's what we do. Because we're self-righteous. Jesus instructs us in the way we should go about the work of helping our brother and practicing forgiveness. And he instructs us in probably one of the most abused scriptures in the New Testament, and that's from the 18th chapter of Matthew. Verse 15 starts, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now let me ask you, how would Jonah have responded? How would Jonah have responded? Let him die in his sins. And some of us respond like Jonah, don't we? How would Judas have responded? I can't help him because God made me this narcissistic cripple. I just can't help him. Can't forgive him. It's not possible. I'm broken. How would the Pharisee respond? I thank God that I am not like my brother who has sinned. Proud, self-righteous. Jesus goes on to say how we continue in this process. 
We take somebody back with us. If they don't listen then, we take the church, right? And I think about this. I said this is one of the most abused scriptures that is out there. Why is it so abused? It's because we are so out of touch with who God is. We are not submitted to his authority. We are not humble before him. And so when anyone comes to us with anything slightly resembling the practice of this scripture, we go, and our defense mechanism is, you're not doing it right by Matthew 18. And Tim and I and Stephen and the elders have had many people say this to us. You're not doing it right by Matthew 18. I called a man whose sister-in-law had accused him to me of having molested her. I called him. He had moved to Georgia. He was now a children's pastor at a church. I said, your sister-in-law says you did this and this and this. He said, well, I might have. I said, okay. I might have done this, he said. And then I knew. Because what he had affirmed was enough. The next thing I know, his pastor's calling me. I thought I was doing the pastor a favor. You understand? He's calling me. You're not preventing my Matthew 18. What? What is the matter with you? Jesus goes on. Peter asks, how often shall I forgive my brother if he sins against me? How many times a day? Seven times a day. Jesus says, 70 times, seven times a day. Then he tells the parable. You know, the parable of the two servants. The one servant comes. He owes thousands of dollars. The master is going to have him thrown into prison until he pays it all off. The servant begs, begs, begs the master. And the master says, okay. Does he say, okay, uh, I'll let you pay it off in little payments like the servant who's asking for. Give me time. Give me time. I'll pay it all off. Is that what the master says? No, the master knows the nature of the debt. And he says what God says, who knows the nature of our debt. He says, no, you can't pay this off. I'll take care of it. I forgive you. Humbly, he appeared to come to his master and his master forgave him. Then he leaves that place and he goes out and he finds another servant who owes him 10 bucks. And he grabs him by the shirt and he shakes him and he says, you better pay me. And the other guy does the same thing he did. Please, please give me time. I'll do it. I'll pay it all back. And of course, what happens? He says, no. Throws him in jail. And the master hears about it and the master calls the first slave back into his office and he says, look, If you're going to be like that, all bets are off because that's not how I work. You will be humble before me and that will transform your life before everyone else. And the master says, now you're going to pay it off with your body. And he puts him in jail for the payment of every last cent. If God is not dwelling with us, it's because we're not humble. If we're not humble, it's shown in the fact that we don't understand who God is and we don't understand who we are before him. We don't understand the debt that he paid. We don't understand what he forgave us of. 
And therefore, we don't know how to give it out to other people. We shouldn't wait for an apology. Do you understand what I'm saying? Should we wait for an apology? Is that what we should do? We shouldn't wait for an apology. We should immediately assume the pre-forgiveness posture. Do you know the posture the police have when they're arresting you? Assume the posture. You throw your arms up on the wall, right? Well, there's a pre-forgiveness posture. And what is it? Well, it's the same as the post-forgiveness posture. And what is that? That's that we're on the ground before God thankful for his kindness and his mercy to us. That we've completely given up our own uh, rights because God didn't exercise his prerogative against us. That we just give it up. This is the posture that the slave should have had when he left his master's presence. He walked out of that room. He should have had the posture that would prepare him to meet the guy who owed him ten bucks. You understand? That's what he should have done. But he didn't. What kind of posture would it look like if you were bitter or self-righteous or in despair what it would look like what would it look like if you approached those around you who you need to have life with and you need to forgive what would it look like if you approached them with the righteousness and the kindness and the love of god radiating out of you exuding out of you you wouldn't be going loaded for bear would you But that's what we do. We go to our husbands and we go to our wives and we go to our sisters and we go to our brothers loaded for bear because we haven't spent time in front of God realizing who we are, humble before him. And so we go to them and they don't even have a chance to have the fertile soil of asking our forgiveness because they can see what we're exuding, right? Huh? The warm fuzzies that are radiating off of us? No. How are you going to go to God? How are you going to go to your brother and your sister and your husband and your wife and your father and your mother and your son and your daughter? How are you going to go to them? And what will the posture be like? How could you possibly be interceding for them as you go to them? They sinned against you. Jesus says if he sins against you, go to him. What's your posture supposed to be while you go to him? Are you supposed to be going to him thinking, (laughs) I'm ready to take care of this guy? Or are you going to him saying, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy, Lord. Help me to make sure I'm right. Help him to have humility to be able to hear what I have to say. Would you please, Lord, intercede in this situation? But that's not what we do. We're hard. And so we have conflicts and struggles. But God is opening our eyes to it. He's so merciful to us. He wants us to cast off the pride. Would you do that? Would you do that? Would you just cast off the pride? I mean, think about what life would be like here. 
if we would be able to cast off the pride. Think about what this church would be like. You know, we have some of it. By God's grace, we do. And you, you can see on Sunday mornings the love that's here. You can see the, I call them swirling eddies, after the service, all over the building as people love one another. But think about it if we got rid of more of the stuff. If we, had, if we assumed the better posture. Think about what life together would be like here. What about your small group? Think about what your small group would be like if you would prefer the other person, if you would love the other person, if you would forgive the other person, if you wouldn't be bitter because of the small group you got stuck with. Right? We let you choose. It's your own fault. (laughs) Think about your families. Think about your homes. What if our homes were places where we radiated humility as we approached one another? Husbands, wives, children. What kind of homes could we have? Would you cast this off? Can we cast this off? Can we be done with this? Can we move forward? Can we obey God? Can we see him for who he is and humble ourselves before him and not just bend our knees at the pastoral prayer because we got told we had to bend our knees, but to bend our knees at the pastoral prayer because inside we're already bent over. We already have assumed the posture. We're already there before God, knowing who we are, knowing who he is, knowing what he's done for us, knowing what he's given to us, knowing that we can take that to everybody in our lives and give it to them. Humility, submission, faith, forgiveness. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.